Oye, 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 those who want to hear about the business of the court next year, admonish to be quiet. Just thought I'm not on the spot, what do you think? Um, well, you've made it this far. As always, our last panel looks ahead to the term ahead, when for the first time in three years we don't have a new justice to go along with the new cases. The docket already presents a more interesting mix of issues than last term, including broadcast indecency, the use of mandatory union fees on political activities, we actually filed a brief in that case, the Knox case today, um, uh, broadcast indecency, I mentioned that, religious groups and exemptions from uh, employment laws, criminal law questions of warrantless GPS tracking, jailhouse strip searches, and ineffective counsel relating to plea bargains, as well as regulatory preemption, sovereign immunity, and intellectual property. And there's also a quirky yet diplomatically significant case about whether the State Department has to identify Israel as the birth country of someone born in Jerusalem, whether it's kind of just Jerusalem qua its own city-state. And all of that is before we even get to the so-called elephant in the room, the lawsuits against the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. Indeed, uh, the room contains a veritable herd of elephants, uh, with cases involving affirmative action, gay marriage, and Arizona's SB 1070, the immigration law, all on the horizon. So it could be the term of the century. <coughs> to discuss this term, potentially of the century, but certainly uh, at least hopefully of the decade, uh, we have Daryl Josepher, Tim Sandifer, and Adam Liptak. Daryl Josepher is a partner in King & Spaulding's National Appellate Practice and deputy leader for the firm's Washington uh, litigation and antitrust practice. He was previously the principal deputy solicitor general, and before that, an assistant to the solicitor general, in which capacities he argued 11 cases uh, and filed more than 100 briefs in the Supreme Court, losing only twice. I assume that's on the argued case, not on the 100 briefs, not on the 100 briefs. I don't know. Before joining the Office of the Solicitor General, Darrell was Deputy General Counsel of the White House Office of Management and Budget, where he focused on environmental and other regulatory matters, and before that he was a partner at Kirkland Ellis and clerk for Fifth Circuit Judge Jerry Smith. Then we'll have Tim Sandifer, who's a principal attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation and adjunct scholar at Cato. As the lead attorney of PLF's Economic Liberty Project, he works to protect businesses against abusive government regulation. Uh, and especially fights eminent domain abuse, having litigated and filed briefs in many important such cases all over the country, including, of course, Kilo. He's the author of two books, Cornerstone of Liberty, Property Rights in 21st Century America, and The Right to Earn a Living, Economic Freedom and the Law, plus more than 40 scholarly articles on subjects ranging from eminent domain and economic liberty, which you've heard about, to copyright, evolution, and creationism, and the legal issues of slavery in the Civil War. Now, I style myself a polymath who likes to write a lot, but I have no idea how Tim manages to uh, write so prolifically on so many different topics. We'll have to discuss that later. His articles have appeared all over the place. He's an adjunct law professor at McGeorge Law School in Sacramento, and in 2006 became one of the youngest attorneys ever featured on the cover of California Lawyer magazine. Uh, he's a frequent commentator on media programs, including The News Hour, This American Life, and he graduated from Chapman University Law School. His former dean, John Eastman, was here earlier uh, in Hillsdale College. And finally, Adam Liptak covers the Supreme Court for the New York Times. I guess Bob Barnes did a, a good enough job last time. Nobody complained, so we decided to have another Supreme Court reporter, uh, where Adam has a column on legal affairs, Sidebar, which I certainly read every other Tuesday. Uh, Adam was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in explanatory reporting in 2009 uh, for a series of articles examining ways in which the US legal system differs from those of other developed countries. He received the 2010 Scripps Howard Award for Washington Reporting for a series on the Roberts Court, 
graduated from Yale College and Yale Law School, practiced law at a big New York City firm, and then in the legal department of the New York Times Company before joining the paper's new staff in 2002. I'm not sure whether that's like moving up from the mailroom or going back to it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> He's taught media law at Columbia University School of Journalism, UCA law, UCLA Law School, and Yale Law School. Now, you know, Tom Goldstein was supposed to be here. Apparently, he's on a plane back from Spain or something. I had this wonderful, funny, lampooning introduction of him, which we'll have to wait till next year. Uh, but first, we'll start off with uh, Daryl. Oh, thanks, Alan. Uh, thanks for having me here. The thing I'm most grateful for is that I'm here for the panel on next year's Supreme Court term instead of last year's. Um, because last year's term, by any objective measure from a sort of you know, general public interest standpoint, uh, was incredibly boring. And so when I was thinking, oh my goodness, what am I going to say on that? Um, I was glad I, also, I, mean, I have done reviews of the past term, and I found them incredibly boring. So I was glad not to do that again. But the other thing I realized, though, is that you've all actually been here all day um, listening to the last term. And presumably, if in fact you're still here, you did not find it incredibly boring. Which made me realize that all of the speakers before me were clearly much better advocates than I am. Um, so if there's any potential clients out there who, who want something to sound interesting, hire any of those other people before me. Um, but for this court's term, there's no doubt it's a huge uptick in terms of cases that will be of interest, not just to you know, people who practice in a particular area of law or are affected by a particular area of law, you know, but just from a newspaper level, it's going to be a much better term. And I, I hope to illustrate that by saying, look, in the first day of the court's term, we've got a Medicaid case, and a sex offender case, which is true, and it, so clearly it's an improvement. The problem is that both cases involve incredibly detailed and boring procedural issues, um, which made me realize that, well, even this term, the court might make, find a way to make really interesting topics really not interesting. But we, we've got some great cases to talk to you about. I'm going to start off with the First Amendment ones, um, and then we're going to sort of alternate back and forth to cover different subject matters. The, the really big First Amendment case this year is the Fox Broadcasting case on indecency in public broadcasting during hours that children might be listening uh, or watching. And if that sounds familiar, the reason is that the exact same Fox Broadcasting case was up a few terms ago. Uh, and back then, my, my colleagues um, in the Solicitor General's office did a magnificent job of persuading the court that we should win regardless of the First Amendment issues in the case, because at that point, you know, we explained that the court clearly took the case for the interesting First Amendment issues uh, only a, a, a more limited series of administrative law issues were present. Um, that turned out to be a brilliant way to save the rights for about three years, um, but now we're, but now the, the constitutional challenge is back and is actually going to be teed up. Uh, the issue there is basically this. It's long been settled that the FCC can, broad, can prohibit repeated use of profanity, for example, in, in, in public broadcasting. The FCC has since tightened up the regulations to prohibit even a single use of profanity in most instances on the theory that if it can prohibit you from saying a word, the reason's not that you used it three or four times, the reason's that you used it at all. Um, similar effect on the, on the audience. Um, and then there's a, a similar um, new, new rules with respect to nudity um, where, where the FCC is basically trying to crack down on, on anything. And the, on the First Amendment front, there are two main issues in the case. One is whether, as a First Amendment matter, generally speaking, the FCC can prohibit this kind of, of you know, so-called so indecency. I think it's fair to say that it's very, the court's very likely to agree that the, the, the FCC can, uh, in part because it has for a very long time. The, the really interesting issue, though, in this case is vagueness, because what the FCC has said is that you can have isolated use of profanity um, in two narrow circumstances. One is 
circumstances where let me get this right it's essential to an educational or artistic work or if it's in the course of a bona fide news program so for example if a presidential candidate you know says that one of the other candidates is effing ridiculous you know fox news to report that obviously um but the the question the vagueness question is that there will be some cases that are fairly close to the line and so therefore as a matter of vagueness doctrine issue the, the the argument goes the regulation should be unconstitutional. The interesting thing is this, most cases are not close to the line, but some are. So in addition to saying that the regulations cannot be applied in cases where it is close to the line, the question is whether if I'm way away from the line, I can, I can argue the whole thing is invalid because there are some cases that are close to the line. And that's itself a very important question apart from indecency. It'll be interesting to see how the court rules on that. Now, the other First Amendment case I wanted to touch on is actually not the, the union fees case that Ilya raised, only because that's an easy one. Under, under existing law, the union's wrong, the workers are right, um, and no one's going to remember that case because it really just sort of fits into some other existing cases. Um, and that, that was a decision by Judge Thomas on the Ninth Circuit, um, and I probably don't need to say a lot more than that. Um, the, uh, the other case I did want to talk about, though, was the Hosanna Tabor case, um, which is the Lutheran ministry case, really interesting religion case, where uh, a Lutheran minister um, was sick, basically disabled, couldn't work for a while. Then was ready to resume her duties, um, but the church decided they didn't really need her back anymore. She pointed out that under the Americans with Disabilities Act, you know, the accommodation would be to take her back. Um, the, the, the school, the church wasn't terribly interested in that, so she said, well, you know, I could sue you, and they said goodbye. Um, so she sued for retaliation for threatening to invoke her rights under the ADA. Um, th there are two really interesting issues here. One is that generally speaking, there's a well-recognized exception to all the federal civil rights anti-discrimination acts for ministers. The theory that ministers are just off the table, and you know, it's just too, too fundamentally religious who you will or won't choose as a minister for the course to be getting into it. Um, here, however, the Court of Appeals said, well, you know, what she did was she taught at a religious school, and she taught mostly secular subjects, because most subjects are secular. Um, and therefore, even though she did act as a minister and did teach religion, that wasn't most of what she did, and therefore the exception did not apply. Um, that's a tough rationale to stick in the Supreme Court, but the more, to me, the more interesting question is here, the Lutherans don't have a religious objection to disabled Lutherans. They're, they're choosing a Lutheran over Buddhist, for example, they're choosing among Lutherans. Um, so what's the religious issue here at all? And the church says that, well, they have a deeply established Lutheran tenet, and this is absolutely true, that Lutherans ought not be suing one another but instead ought to work out the differences otherwise. And therefore they say that it was when she threatened to sue under the, under the uh, federal laws that's just contrary to their religion and therefore they had to let her go. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I mean the laughter says it all. Because on the one on the one hand this is true. I mean this is not a this is not, you know, a religion that was, you know, developed in the last few years with convenient tenets. This is all absolutely true. On the other hand, it's fantastically convenient um, <laughs> if you have a deeply held religious tenet that you're above the law. Um, or at least above recourse to the law. Um, and so that's what is going to be fun about that case as the, as the court you know, looks at the arguments on both sides and, and, and decides what to do with it. Um, with that, I was going to turn it over uh, to Tim to cover some of the, uh, the other individual liberties cases. Um, so I have uh, seven cases, 15 minutes. I've been awake for 36 hours straight and I'm covering for Thomas Goldstein. So bear with me. <laughs> Um, I'll start out with uh, a case that we're particularly... You realize that means it has to be some humor rather than actually well, understanding the case. Well, look otherwere. Otherwhere. Well, anyway, um, 
I'm, we're, we're particularly proud of a case uh, at Pacific Legal Foundation called Sackett versus EPA because this is our case that's going to be heard by the U.S. Supreme Court sometime this winter. This is a case involving the EPA's use of what they call compliance orders on um, the Sackett's owned property where their neighbors had built a house and these neighbors had built a house and they wanted to build their house and they began the process of building the house when the EPA showed up and said, surprise, this is a wetland. Anybody know what a wetland is? Anything the government says it is, right? Um, so they issued a compliance order that says that you're, you are out of compliance with the, with the Clean Water Act and you're required to restore your property to the original state. And if you fail to do so, you face fines of $37,500 a day for failure to comply. Um, the Sackets said, well, we don't think we are on a wetland. We have, no, we have no reason to believe we are on a wetland. Our neighbors were allowed to build. There was no indication that this was a wetland. We would like a hearing to determine whether or not this actually is a wetland. And the EPA said, no, we are not required to give you a hearing. So in other words, what they have to do is wait for the EPA to file an enforcement action against them and then raise a defense to the, uh, on the grounds that they are not uh, uh, building on a wetland. Um, or just you know go ahead and comply, which of course is what most people in that situation would probably do. And if they fail to comply, if they wait for the EPA to come after them with this enforcement action, you know that's they have to wait thirty-seven thousand, thirty-seven thousand, thirty-seven thousand. You all remember the end of the movie Airplane? At the end of the credits, when they show Howard Jarvis is still sitting in the taxi waiting for the taxi driver to come back, right? That's how I envision the sackets. The EPA is sitting in their driveway with the meter running, 37,000, 37,000, 37,000. So we argue that either they are statutorily entitled to some kind of hearing, or that this process violates the due process clause. And that case is, like I said, is going to be argued by my colleague Damian Schiff probably in December or January. Um, there's also, uh, proceeding on to um, uh, uh, sovereign immunity cases, there's Coleman versus Maryland Court of Appeals. This is a Fourth Circuit case where the question is whether Congress has validly waived state sovereign immunity under the self-care provisions of the Family Medical Leave Act. Remember, the Family Medical Leave Act is a, a federal law that entitles employees to time off to take care of sick family members, but it also allows you to time off to take care of yourself if you're sick. And in Nevada versus Hibbs, the Supreme Court held that this validly waived the sovereign immunity of the states under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment because it was civil rights legislation intended to remedy the, um, the, the, the imbalance between male and female workers uh, in the workplace. But the uh, Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals found no similar reason to believe that the self-care provisions of the Family Medical Leave Act were intended to remedy sexism or address any kind of civil rights issue. And so it found that there was no valid waiver of sovereign immunity so that's going up to the Supreme Court. There's another case that's not in the book or on the list, but I find it personally very interesting. It's an issue that I worked on when I was a law student. This is a case called Douglas from the Ninth Circuit. It's a combination of a whole bunch of cases together, very complicated. And the question is whether individuals can sue, whether they have a, a private right of action under the Medicaid statutes to challenge states' implementation of, uh, of Medicaid pro uh, processes that, that, you know, these are these so-called agreements with the federal government, right? Um, and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, although some, many, many courts have held that there is no private right of action, 
the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals held that plaintiffs can challenge the state's Medicaid regulations and statutes as being, pre as being contrary to the supremacy clause of the Constitution. They said, quote, a cause of action based on the supremacy clause obviates the need for reliance on third party rights because the cause of action is one to enforce the proper constitutional relationship between the state and federal government and therefore is not rights based. It's interesting that this seems like sort of the obverse of the Bond case, right, where individuals were allowed to raise Tenth Amendment issues um, when, if they could satisfy the you know, regular standing rules. So this seems to be kind of the, the reverse of that, whether people can challenge uh, state regulations that they claim fail to live up to the standards promised to them by federal Medicaid statutes. Moving on to, to foreign issues, um, the case of Zivotofsky versus Clinton. This is the case that Ilya mentioned earlier about uh, Israel. Um, there is a long-standing uh, State Department procedure of not putting the word Israel on birth certificates or passports for people born in Jerusalem. Um, the State Department does not take an official position on whether Jerusalem is you know, legitimately part of Israel and whatnot. This has been a standard operating procedure since the Truman administration. But in a, one of these giant uh, omnibus uh, appropriations bills during the Bush administration, Congress instructed the president on the request of any person born in Jerusalem to put Israel on their passports or, birth certi or certified copies of their birth certificates uh, issued by the State Department. So um, a well, an infant by and through the, the uh, next friends sued to get Israel put on, on the passports and the DC Circuit um, uh, refused, uh, threw the case out as a political question. Now this is this case, I think, is gonna be just one of these real high-tech con law nerd cases. Because the dissenting judge said, it's not a political question, it violates the separation of powers because Congress has no right to intervene in, in the president's decision to recognize or not recognize uh, foreign countries and so forth. And so the, the question is, nobody disputes really that the plaintiff's gonna lose. It's just whether it's a political question loss or a loss on the merits. Um, and it will, I think, I found the dissent more, more persuasive myself, and it'll give Justice Scalia probably an opportunity to talk a little bit about his views of political question, because he, he's quite skeptical of political question doctrine. I think that'll be kind of interesting. Not very interesting are two of the um, preemption cases. <laughs> National Meat Association versus Harris from the Ninth Circuit. Oh, another slaughterhouse thing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me started, Ilya. <laughs> Which in a, uh, the, the, the Ninth Circuit Court uh, of Appeals, uh, in, a, in a decision by our keynote speaker, uh, uh, Judge Kaczynski, who tried his, his very hardest to make it a fun and interesting case um, with uh, clever, well, puns anyway, um, <laughs> found that California law that, um, that requires the, um, the euthanizing of non-ambulatory slaughter animals. These are animals destined for the slaughterhouse who, due to sickness or injury, cannot move on their own, whether they can be uh, slaughtered for human consumption or not. The, and the, um, the Federal uh, Meat Inspection Act restricts states of direction for Talmudic or uh, you know, Muslim scholars rather than... Uh, <laughs> well, actually, I, I, I thought it was a surprisingly simple case, actually. Judge Kuzinski rather convincingly shows that the state regulation only says what meat can go into the slaughterhouse. The federal regulation only preempts state interference with what goes on inside the slaughterhouse. And there you go. Then there was the even more dull case of Kearns versus Railroad Friction Production Corporation from the Third Circuit, which is the question of whether 
the, uh, the Federal Locomotive Inspection Act preempts state tort law for asbestos exposure. Who cares? Next. <laughs> Thank you. Adam. Thanks. Um, so I'm going to talk about the criminal cases. The criminal docket at the court usually consists of uh, various permutations of uh, cars, drugs in cars, people in cars, who search in the car. This term is different. This term, the criminal docket, is excellent. I, I say that as a journalist. Uh, they're uh, big cases, and they could uh, uh, be consequential cases. They could really uh, alter uh, how aspects of the criminal justice system works. Uh, one of them, I think, will be the subtext of, of some of Judge Kaczynski's uh, talk after we leave the stage. Uh, it's called United States Against Jones, and it involves the question of whether the police can put a um, GPS tracking device on your car and, uh, and gather up data for a month at a time of everywhere you go. Um, there's, a, as it happened, there's a nice keystone cops element to this. The cops in this case did get a warrant. They were told they could put the car uh, the device on the car in D.C. for 10 days. On the 11th day, they put it on the car in Maryland. Um, uh, the, there's a circuit split uh, on this question. In the D.C. circuit, uh, Judge Doug Ginsburg said that collecting this kind of information is different uh, in kind from what the Supreme Court has endorsed. The Supreme Court, about 30 years ago, in a case called Knotts, said you could put a beeper into a container of chemicals, which some poor schmuck puts on the back of his pickup truck, and you follow that beeper. It gets stronger and weaker as you follow it. You can follow that beeper for 100 miles, and that's okay, partly on the theory of it, it enhances the police's ability, their age-old ability to track people through surveillance and uh, driving around after cars. And the question now is whether this kind of device, which, which you don't need to be near, which you could you know, collect from a remote computer, uh, is, is different in kind or degree. Um, and the case has two pieces to it, really. Uh, one is, what about just simply putting it on the car? Is there a problem there? Is there a property rights problem there? Is that a search? Uh, Judge Kaczynski, in a similar case, uh, said that there's something creepy and un-American about having your, you know, the police stick a device on your car, and also maybe even a kind of equal protection problem, because it's harder to put it on a rich person's car in his garage easier to put it on a poor person's car who parks out in the street. Um, so that's a, that's, a, that, that's a cool, interesting case. Uh, a second case, uh, also with quite broad uh, impact, asked the question of whether uh, it's okay to strip search anybody arrested and put into the, uh, and, and, and detained in a jail or other facility uh, for any offense at all. The person in question was uh, strip searched twice uh, on, on false grounds, as it turns out, for not having uh, 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 complied with some kind of civil contempt warrant. Uh, other people have been strip searched because they walked their dog without a leash um, and, and other trivial sorts of, uh, of offenses. Uh, here again, there's a Supreme Court case that gives us some guidance. The earlier case says um, that it's okay to routinely strip search people already in prison after contact visits. Uh, and some judges have said, well, there's no difference in principle here. That you've just had a contact visit with the world when, uh, when the police arrest and detain you. So maybe that's okay. Uh, Tom Goldstein's going to uh, argue that case. He's got an idiosyncratic style at the court as he does in panels like this. So that's going to be interesting as well. Uh, a couple of terms ago, the court uh, decided a case called Padilla against Kentucky, which uh, raised the question of, do you have any recourse 
if your lawyer gives you bad advice about who's <laughs> who? No recourse. No, I'll keep going. Um, about whether to accept a guilty plea. Uh, so, so this is the Disney, the new Disneyland Supreme Court ride. Right. <laughs> if your chair started moving. <laughs> They're being tracked by GPS. <laughs> so a lawyer falsely tells his client, you can plead guilty, you'll serve some time, you won't be deported. The advice was false. Supreme Court says, that's not good. I mean, whatever else. You know, you, sh you, you, you should at least be able to rely on your lawyer for some collateral, for accurate information about some collateral consequences of your guilty plea. Now the court has taken a pair of cases that invert the question. What if your lawyer tells you not to take a plea? and it's really bad advice. What if your lawyer doesn't convey to you a very attractive plea? Do you have any recourse there? And that's a, it's very hard to figure out how that fits into the usual way of thinking about ineffective assistance of counsel, which tends to turn on, well, would the result of trial have been different, the Strickland test? Uh, so what the court does there uh, is, is interesting, and as I say, consequential, because as you know, trials are rarities and pleas are common. Uh, and there, just as there's a lot of bad lawyering in trial, there's plenty of bad lawyering at the, at the plea stage, but the courts have typically not policed it. So those cases could be interesting. Uh, there's a case called uh, Maples, which asks the question of well, what happens when uh, Sullivan and Cromwell uh, agrees to represent you for free and you're a death row inmate and they do a terrible job. Um, Sullivan and Cromwell- I think Corbath puts out a press release at that point. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Sullivan and Cromwell assigned two uh, associates to help uh, a uh, death row inmate named Corey Maples. Uh, as associates do, they left the firm. Uh, a, an important court order is sent to the firm. The court's mailroom marks it return to sender. Attorneys left firm. A deadline passes. Uh, Corey Maples has some decent arguments. The courts uh, in Alabama uh, and um, and in the federal courts have said tough luck, deadlines are deadlines. And the question in the case, Red Gar is going to argue that case um, on behalf of Maples. Uh, the question in the case is what, if, if your lawyers are no longer representing you, if the government is at some fault, I mean the court clerk in Alabama could have tried a little harder, um, uh, what ought to happen? And my guess is that although the, the, the court indulges fairly liberally in the fiction that, that appointed and volunteer counsel are, like, are the authentic agents of their clients and, uh, and the errors that they make should be imputed to the clients. I think the court here, having taken the case, is likely to find a way to help Mr. Maples. Similarly, and last, there's a follow-on case to last term's very divisive uh, uh, Connick against Thompson case, where 5-4, the court uh, threw out a $14 million uh, judgment on behalf of a wrongfully convicted death row inmate who came very close to being executed. Uh, some Brady violation materials appeared late in the day. He was uh, exonerated. He sues. The court is not friendly to, um, to claims against government officials and the court uh, on prosecutorial immunity grounds said that uh, this inmate, Thompson, could not recover. Uh, now um, a, a case comes in a much cleaner setting because the New Orleans District Attorney's Office really does seem to be a factory for Brady, Brady violations. Um, of whether in the post-conviction context uh, something can be done. And I think the court, having gotten beaten up a bit uh, 
in being perceived, at least by some, and certainly by Justice Ginsburg, as being a little hard-hearted and mechanical in a way, uh, might be eager to show that in the proper procedural context, it will uh, it will uh, help someone in the victim of prosecution on this gun. That's it. Darrell? Uh, thanks. Yeah, I, I agree about that last one. The main thing is the difference between in remedies. You know, yeah. suing people for money is one thing. You know, getting out when you're clearly innocent is, yeah, the more appropriate remedy. Um, uh, sure. Next, I think we're talking a little bit about intellectual property law. Um, I'll cover the patent cases, or at least the, the ones we're talking about. Intellectual property law has become enormously has an enormously increased exposure at the Supreme Court in recent years. It used to be, especially in patents, if the court took a patent case every few years. You know, that was a lot. Now it's taken it's three last year, it's already taken three for next year, and there have been multiple patent cases in a number of other recent years. Uh, there are a couple of theories as to why IP laws is, is so much more prominent in the court docket these days. Um, some people point out that, look, it's just a lot more important in the economy generally, given the nature of the modern economy, so of course the court stock is adjusted. Um, the other thing that's probably going on here is that when, when Congress enacted, when Congress set up the federal circuit to have exclusive jurisdiction over patent appeals at the Court of Appeals level, um, and thereby unify the law at the Court of Appeals level, I think the Supreme Court you know, pretty much decided to leave the federal circuit alone to do its business for a while. Um, then in more recent years when it started paying attention to what the federal circuit had done, um, I think two things happened. One is the Supreme Court decided there's really no reason to stay away from patent cases because once you've actually done one, they're no more scary than every other kind of case. Um, there's nothing magical about them. So I think the court got comfortable with them. The other thing is the court clearly didn't think very highly of the federal circuit's handiwork in quite a lot of instances because almost all the federal, almost all the patent cases have been reversals with you know, increased regularity. This past year was an exception. This past year, in the three patent cases the Supreme Court took, uh, it mostly affirmed, not completely, but mostly affirmed. Um, so that obviously the courts don't disagree on everything, um, but the Supreme Court and the Federal Circuit are really coming you know, from different directions on patent law, which helps explain why there's now a growing amount of that at the court. The really interesting case up there this year deals with attempts to patent nature or something similar to nature. Um, in, in modern medicine these days, a lot of the great discoveries are of how the body works. And then once you've figured out how the body works, it's pretty obvious what you do about it but the discovery of how the body works is amazing. And in the case that's up there this term, which is somewhat emblematic of this, uh, there's a sub, it was really hard to figure out if you had the right amount of, of one substance in the body, but people figured out that that correlated to another substance in the body that was easy to measure for. So the discovery is instead of trying to measure for this, just measure for something else, you'll get your answer. It's going to significantly improve a lot of people's lives. but. Everyone agrees it's well settled that laws of nature, natural phenomena, are not themselves patentable. Instead, because you, can, you really don't want people patenting nature and the building blocks of nature. Um, but what you can patent is, because the building blocks are what other people are supposed to be able to work with. Um, plus, since creepy seems to be an analogy today, it's kind of creepy to patent like the parts of the human body. Um, but in any event, you can have this thing where on the one hand you can't patent the natural phenomenon. But on the other hand, it's really the only thing that's worth patenting. And so what, what some of the medical companies are doing is, in this case, for example, they, they got a, a patent on a method of, they'll test for the one substance and then draw a natural conclusion about the other. Which is kind of like, which is cheating, because it's kind of like saying if E equals MC squared is not patentable, which it's not, then why is test for E calculate MC squared patentable? And I think the answer, legally speaking, has got to be that it's not, because it's just an end run around the fact that E equals MC squared is not patentable. Um, but what's interesting about these cases is that, on the one hand, 
you don't want people patenting nature or something that is basically a clever way of trying to patent nature. On the other hand, these discoveries are vastly more important to humanity than a lot of the stuff that gets patents. So why don't you have some incentive system for that? Some additional intellectual property incentive for that, apart from the normal commercial ones, as long as you've got intellectual property rights for lots of other things. And the case that's really interesting, that might be the court following here, is human DNA. Because the Federal Circuit has held that although you can't patent DNA in the human body, you can patent an isolated part of human DNA removed from the human body. Um, on the theory that, well, what you've taken out of the human body, it's not the whole DNA strand, and therefore it's different, if for no other reason than that it's not all there and the ends are frayed. That's slightly non-technical oversimplification, that's the basic reasoning. The dissent went ballistic on that, saying, you know, you take a leaf off a tree, it's still a leaf. And if it wasn't patentable on the tree, it's not patentable off the tree. And patenting, but genuinely is the human body, DNA seems kind of startling. Um, but that's, again, similarly, it's an amazing discovery that somebody had. Um, and so it's odd to say that you really can't in any way try to patent that. So those are the, that's the really interesting thing that's going on right now in patent law. Um, beyond that, I think Tim was going to cover the, uh, the copyright cases. The first patent case you, may, you mentioned, uh, Mayo versus Prometheus, we actually filed a brief on that last week, and it's kind of, you know, there's a lot of disagreement in the libertarian community about, you know, some who say that there shouldn't be any intellectual IP protections whatsoever, and others are kind of more of a conventional thing that you know, spans the spectrum. And, uh, but this. Uh, we thought uh, we have a, a broad coalition that uh, uh, was just so uh, egregious. This, you know, making an inference as being patentable that uh, we found no, you know, ideological divisions or anything uh, as we were going through this project. Yeah, and I will say I'd, I'd be surprised if those patents survive Supreme Court scrutiny. And I wonder if you'll find the same kind of unity with the other case that you mentioned. What's it called? American Molecular Pathology Association, something from the Federal Circuit about DNA. Right. Yeah, the Myriad case. Yes. Yeah. I wonder if you'll find the same kind of unity. Um, for those of us who find intellectual property extremely troubling on, a, on, a, on just on a morality basis, if nothing else, um, the case of Golan versus Holder is particularly interesting. This is a Tenth Circuit case challenging the constitutionality of a, con of a, of a statute that implements an international agreement which extends copyright protection to foreign pr um, um, materials, that is, materials produced outside the United States, that are in the public domain under American law. Now, that does not apply to, to, to stuff that, that uh, is in the public domain due to the expiration of its native copyright, but it does apply to things that were not copyrighted, uh, or did not enjoy copyright monopoly status in the United States, now suddenly do, which means that it silences for example, the plaintiff's orchestras, who previously were free to play music, are no longer allowed to do so. Um, and they, this challenge has been going on for a couple of years. In 2007, the Court of Appeals rejected the argument that this exceeds Congress's copyright clause authority, citing the, um, the previous case, uh, was it Eldred versus, Eldred versus Ashcroft, which, um, you know, is, it, it seems pretty persuasive as a precedential matter, but Eldred was wrongly decided, so. Um, and then they also argue uh, free speech, that this violates the First Amendment, and the Court of Appeals rejected that argument, so both of those arguments are now before the U.S. Supreme Court. To be argued by Tom Goldstein as well. And uh, Cato filed a, an amicus brief that addresses the issue you heard about earlier when uh, Professor Eastman was talking about the treaty power, whether Congress, aside from the question of, the, uh, of the, the free speech issue and stuff like that, whether Congress, regardless of that, can still 
place these items into copyright, enclose these commons, as it were, simply in order to give effect to an international agreement uh, that requires that it do so. So that it's, a very, it's an interesting and complicated case, and I think the intellectual property stuff is at, at least at the top of the list of things to watch this year. And then Adam will talk so about the herd of elephants in the room. So, so have we made the case that this is a really interesting term so far? I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> It, it's, it's, it's a perfectly okay term, uh, but there are not a few people, as, as Ilya says, who are hoping, uh, I'm among them, uh, that it will be the term of the century. And if it is, that will turn largely on healthcare. I'm going to talk about that last, and I'm going to kick that around with the panelists, because there's a lot of ways to game out which case gets to the court win. And talk about three other um, areas, any of which would be uh, easily blockbuster front page news if the court agrees uh, to hear them. And here again, we have some questions of timing, but these issues are, are likely to reach the court, if not this term, uh, next term. Um, the first is the Arizona immigration law. The petition on that case uh, has already been filed. Uh, Paul Clement represents the state uh, and makes a quite persuasive case that this is uh, Supreme Court material. The question in the case is, is preemption. Uh, does what Arizona is doing, which it would say is uh, vigorously supplementing federal immigration law at odds with federal immigration law. Uh, the administration and the Ninth Circuit have said yes. Uh, whatever you think about that answer, it certainly seems like a consequential case. The only reasons the justices might not take it are that it does arise in the context of a preliminary injunction, so it's interlocutory, and, but it's not exactly clear what would happen uh, if the courts uh, spent time to look at the merits. The uh, issues seem to be legal and fairly clean, although I guess we don't know in practice how the Arizona law will be enforced. And the second is that there are some, some cases in other jurisdictions that the Arizona approach is not novel uh, that might also raise the issues. But th that petition looks fairly clean to me, and it would not surprise me at all if we had a big Arizona immigration case this term. Um, there are some same-sex marriage cases, as you know, percolating along. The most famous one, the Ted Olson-David Boyce challenge to Prop 8, is taking uh, procedural twists and turns. Uh, recently, the Ninth Circuit certified a question to the California Supreme Court about whether uh, interveners who had um, supported the ballot initiative uh, had standing uh, to pursue the appeal. California Supreme Court heard an argument the other day. The press report suggests that the answer to that question will be yes, they're allowed to do it. Uh, the California Supreme Court by local statute has 90 days to rule, so we'll get that ruling fairly quickly. Go back to the Ninth Circuit, uh, but that's still at the panel level. Will that case get to the court this term? Probably not. Uh, there are some cases that I think from the point of view of uh, supporters of same-sex marriage, might be better cases for them to get to the court first involving the Defense of Marriage Act. Uh, there, the question is a little bit easier for supporters of same-sex marriage because it, it asks whether people validly married in a state, uh, uh, and marriage being, many people would say, a state law matter, whether federal benefits should track um, the, uh, what the states do versus what the Prop 8 case is asking to do, which is to reject what the voters there had wanted and force a state that doesn't have same-sex marriage to have same-sex marriage. Um, but there, the briefing in the First Circuit is just beginning. Um, there are cases elsewhere in the country as well. Again, likely to hit the court in some fashion, 
there's an argument to be made for supporters of same-sex marriage that they shouldn't be too eager to get to the court too soon. Um, but the DOMA cases might be a more attractive vehicle for them if they can figure out a way to get, uh, get out in front of the Prop 8 case. Um, there are some affirmative action cases on the horizon as well. And should the court take one of them, there's quite likely to be a different answer than we got in the Michigan cases a few years ago, because this is one of the areas where the substitution of Justice Alito uh, for Justice O'Connor might well make a difference. One of them will- But, but only eight of the 25-year shot clock uh, has run, so does that mean like only by a third do we change the metric? I don't know that the 25 years was holding. Um, <laughs> so so one, of the, one of the cases comes out of Texas where, in a way, holding its nose, uh, the, and, and certainly a, a concurrence from Judge Garza holding his nose, said, I guess we have to do this. We have to uphold the Texas system, which is, which is sort of, which is unique. It, it largely uh, relies on anyone graduating in the top 10% of any high school uh, gets into the UT system. But that doesn't fill up the entire class, and race is still taken account of in some sort of holistic uh, fashion to fill up the rest of the slots. And there was a sense that some of the justices said, well, I guess Grutter requires us to do this, but we don't like it. And it's entirely possible uh, that that case reaches the court. There's also a second case out of Michigan where Michigan voters, uh, by, by initiative, said that uh, notwithstanding Grutter, uh, the uh, public universities there should not uh, take account of race. And that uh, initiative was struck down recently by a, a, a Sixth Circuit panel. Uh, so there too, I, either either or both of those cases could um, could really take take a hard look at, uh, at at what what the Michigan cases only eight years ago did, and then finally healthcare. Um, I you know to review the bidding, we have three court of appeals decisions so far. Uh, the D.C. Circuit uh, decision is upcoming. Uh, the Sixth Circuit. Uh, upheld the law and there is a petition in that case pending at the end of the month uh, the SG's office unless it gets more time will have to say what it wants to do uh, almost simultaneously in a second case in the 11th circuit which struck down the individual mandate uh, the SG will have to decide whether to seek en banc review these two ideas are related of course because if they do seek en banc review you might be able to say in the sixth circuit case that yes, true, there's a circuit split at the moment, but we don't know that there's going to be a circuit split because we might get the thing on bond. Um, there's also the possibility in the 11th Circuit, because it was not a complete win um, for the 26 states, that they might uh, uh, go to the court directly themselves. Uh, the other Stay day, tuned on that. The, 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 I've heard some rumblings that we might have a filing from the plaintiffs uh, any day now. Say more. Um, <laughs> I, I have neither. I mean, I, I'm just passing along unconfirmed rumors and uh, innuendo and trying to liven this up a bit. But. And, and, and I want to I kick it around with you guys. And then, and then finally, there's a Fourth Circuit case which I've, on threshold issues uh, didn't reach and thus effectively uh, upheld the law. I don't think that's the case the justices want. I think the justices probably want the Eleventh Circuit case. It's got all the states in it. Again, Paul Clement uh, represents uh, the states. I, I guess I would just add this thought. There's a sense in the land of, of great urgency, and it would be an outrage if the court didn't take it right away, and maybe the justices share that view. But it's also conceivable to me that the justices want to appear judicial in the sense of letting everything happen in the ordinary course, perhaps not eager to drop a bombshell uh, in June of, of the election year, perhaps justice content to do this next term. 
so while you know the I think the consensus view is this term I don't think that's a lock but I, I'm eager to have uh, the views of the other panelists I, I certainly agree with Adam on that in that it, it may be this term it could easily be next because if you're looking at it objectively speaking, by now there's been plenty of percolation on this issue. You know, lots of court of appeals opinions on both jurisdiction and the standing issues, which are important, um, and also on the merits. So there's not really a good reason to pass up the next case if it presents all of it well. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, I, there are two things. One is you're, you are looking for a case that presents the whole set of issues reasonably well. and. If you pick the state's case, because they have co-parties of, of businesses who clearly have standing, in that case, you, the court doesn't have to worry about a standing, a threshold standing question so much. And that also involves the states that clearly have standing over Medicaid, which is the other interesting issue in the case. So there's an argument, in other words, for not taking the first case in line, because it might not be the best vehicle. Um, and so you've got to figure out which case really, you know, which case are you going to get to the merits of the issues and get to all of them if you want to get to all of them. And that's not necessarily the one in front of the line right now. The other thing, which I agree with Adam on, is I mean, the, the court's not excited about putting its neck out there and you know, right before an election and becoming a hot topic in the next election. That's not to say that they're afraid of doing so, as we as, as we know. Um, but I, I can't see where they would you know be interested in rushing to do that if, if that was otherwise not the logical thing. So if they think that you know the, the right case to do this is down the road, and that that case would not naturally hit their, their docket this, for this term, I don't see why they'd be terribly concerned about um, about about holding over for a term. Here's one of the political atmospheric things about this. Um, at the front end, uh, after the Florida judge ruled, after Judge Vincent ruled in the state's case, um, first of all, there was some confusion about there. There's no stay of this decision uh, like there had been in Virginia with the Fourth Circuit case. And so there was confusion about, well, does the federal government have to stop doing all implementation of Obamacare? Because the, you know, the, whole, the whole thing was struck down, the way that the severability analysis was, uh, was applied by Judge Vincent. Uh, or just with respect to the 26 states, or just in the Northern District of Florida, or in the 11th Circuit, or whatever that, there was a supplemental briefing, supplemental decision, and an eventual stay, and eventual uh, appeal, and so forth. Um, but before that appeal, the states and the NFIB moved for en banc review right away, and, they, and the government opposed that. So it's a little cheeky, to say the least, to say, oh, well, all of a sudden we now need en banc review. Moreover, because of the way that you're know, reading the tea leaves of, so this was 2-1, uh, there's seven judges left on the, uh, on the 11th Circuit. Uh, to get en banc review, to, to win there, they would have to flip two Republican appointees, effectively, doing the crass political math. I mean, it's, it's not going to happen. They would not win that. Uh, it would even be tough to get the en banc review in the first place. So such a move is clearly a, a would, would purely be a political move to push this uh, or to uh, you know, raise the chances that this would not be decided next June and past uh, the election. So there's some political calculus uh, there as well. And as I mentioned, you know, uh, obviously I've been uh, heavily involved in all the filing amicus briefs and you know, talking to different uh, counsel and so forth. I, I have no direct knowledge. You know, Mike Carm didn't call me up and say, make sure you mention the Constitution that we might file. No, that didn't happen. Uh, but you know that might happen, which would, you know, that would be on the Medicaid and on the severability issue uh, out of the 11th Circuit, but obviously necessarily would bring in the individual mandate uh, itself. Uh, so you know, Karen Hart is right there from the NFIB. You might want to talk to her at the reception afterwards and see what exactly is going on. 
Um, the Fourth Circuit now looks down. Well, I mean, once you have the Eleventh Circuit ruling creating a direct split with the Sixth Circuit, the rest is all anticlimactic anyway. I mean, the Fourth Circuit came up with some really fascinating stuff. All of us con law theorists who purport to be such uh, went scrambling to try to understand what this Anti-Injunction Act nonsense was all about. But anyway, that, that makes it even less likely that the court would, would want to take that up straight up because they didn't even reach the merits there. Um, and indeed, the D.C. Circuit is hearing argument next week, and they put out an order saying, okay, first we want to hear about the Commerce Clause, then we want to hear about the taxing power, and then the Anti-Injunction Act, you know, as kind of an, an afterthought, I guess, but uh, well, that's next Friday in, in that case. Um, so, you know, depending on the en banc shenanigans, I, I do think it's still much more likely than not that the Eleventh Circuit will, you know, the court probably would need that cert petition or to be fully briefed by about February, and I think that's still more likely than not to happen. Uh, yes, I think the most likely outcome is that the court either grants cert in the Sixth Circuit case, the Thomas More case, and holds on to it until the Eleventh Circuit cert petition is filed, and then takes as your brief version it to, which is what my brief version to, or um, or denies cert in the Sixth Circuit case and takes the Eleventh Circuit case when it comes up, which I think is slightly less likely, just because I think I don't know that the court would want to send that message, or that it just leaves the cert petition on the table and doesn't act on it until the 11th Circuit get, uh, stuff comes. That seems a little less likely because uh, of the whole on-bank thing, but maybe not. I don't know. Who knows anything about this stuff? Um, I'm very much looking forward to the argument in, DC, in the D.C. Circuit, uh, Seven Sky versus Holder. And, um, and as far as the Fourth Circuit, the Anti-Injunction Act thing, I think it's certainly the case that the, that, that issue is going to have to at least be discussed at the U.S. Supreme Court level but I don't think it's a serious concern, and I also don't think that the states need to fear anything about standing as a constitutional matter in the Florida case if that cert petition is granted. Um, I think that the Fourth Circuit opinion on, on Virginia's standing, I think, was wrong on the merits. Um, my theory of standing set forth in my ingenious amicus brief in the case. Um, <laughs> Failed to persuade the court, uh, but uh, uh, I also think that it's really outside the field. I think they had to certain. deal with it that way because they didn't want to have to grapple with the hard issues that I raised in my ingenious. <laughs> <laughs> Mine's more ingenious than yours, Ilya. Uh, so, but I, but that issue is really kind of beside the point for the standing of the states in the Florida case because they, in addition to have business, having businesses as plaintiffs, there's also individuals in that case that have standing to allege individual injuries, which I don't think can be plausibly denied. That hasn't stopped the federal government from denying that, but um, but courts have, have generally rejected those those standing arguments against individual plaintiffs. Anything more from any of the panels on any of these cases before we open to questions? The thought does occur to me that maybe there's a political price to be paid for seeking on mock review, but it's nothing like the political price to be paid by having your signature uh, legislative proposal struck down by the Supreme Court as unconstitutional. So I'm not sure the calculus there, uh, if, if, if that's the right calculus, where that leads you. I'd also say, I mean, in the government, it's the, the presumption is that you seek on bond before cert, and, and you almost always seek on bond. Obviously, there are exceptions, but I don't know, I wouldn't. Obviously, it would be a political decision, but, but I, I do think that there's, you know, it's pretty easy to explain that, well, this is what we do, because it gives us two shots and two bites of the apple. You know, one thing, though, is Mr. Liptak's comments bring to mind. I, personally, I'm not, I, know, I, I don't know much about politics, but I have not been persuaded by those who say, those who say that the Obama administration's opponents gain by quick review by the Supreme Court. I, I, I'm not really sure that it, that it really does help them 
any more than the alternative would. It, because if, if the Supreme Court takes a long time, then doesn't that mean that the administration's opponents have this thing around to, to beat like a pinata all the way through the presidential election? Yeah, Whereas if they get struck down, the Democratic, part, the Democratic Party can, say, can rally to save their statute or something, right? Yeah, but if you figure that they're going to win, it'd be so much more fun to point out that the only thing you got true. accomplished got knocked down. That's true. That's way more interesting. That's true. <laughs> and and the, it's not clear that the politics of it being sustained is all that good for the administration, because then people say, well, then we have to send enough politicians to Washington to change this law. 